Father in heaven, thank you for this beautiful Sabbath day. Thank you for giving us the privilege of studying from the Bible and looking deeper into the things of God that will prepare us to be ready to meet you when you come in the clouds of heaven. And I pray that your coming would be very soon and that you would live out your life in each one of us so that we may spread the message of your character and love to this world around us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I am... Is that better? I am very excited to be here and to study some things with you this afternoon. I just got back from a trip to Boston, Massachusetts for some medical meetings. And while I was there, I took the opportunity to go to um, the roots of our message, up to Washington, New Hampshire, over to William Miller's farm. Um, Over at Washington, New Hampshire, they've built a Sabbath trail, which is something new from when I was there last. So you can go through about a mile-long trail through through the woods of New Hampshire. It's absolutely beautiful. And it's a trail that has 31 different stops along the way, which talks about the story of the Sabbath from creation to the second coming. And it goes through the time of creation, then through the time of Israel and their apostasy, and then the time of Christ, how he restored the Sabbath. It goes through the Dark Ages, then it goes through the Millerite movement, and talks about the, the battle between the Sabbath and the issue of worship in the last days. It's a very wonderful thing. And then I was able to go over to William Miller's farm after that. And um, it's just... It's really inspiring to go back to see the places where this message first started. And what's interesting, if you think about it, the message really took off and got started in New England. Um, Maine, Vermont, New Hampshire, eastern New York, Boston, Massachusetts. And interestingly enough, that is the same geographical location of the rise of the United States of America. Um, We fought for our independence, won the Revolutionary War, One of the key battles was in Boston, and I saw some of that while I was there as well. And it's not a coincidence that geographically, the two-horned, lamb-like beast of Revelation 13 came to prominence in New England. And the message that would start this Second Advent movement also came to prominence in New England. So um, if you ever get a chance to go to that part of the country, I would highly recommend going to those places of Adventist historical interest. Um, Now, what I'm going to be doing today is going through a, um, hopefully a fresh look at the concept of the judgment, the cleansing of the sanctuary, and how it relates to us as God's people in the end of time. And I wanted to read just a few quotes to start our Bible study this afternoon. This is from Maranatha, page 30. And this is Ellen White speaking. She says here, A message that will arouse the churches is to be proclaimed. Every effort is to be made to give the light not only to our people but to the world. I have been instructed that the prophecies of Daniel and the Revelation should be printed in small books with the necessary explanations and should be sent all over the world. Our own people need to have the light placed before them in clearer lines. So this is very important. 
what we are told here is that it's the prophecies of Daniel and Revelation that need to be taken to the world. They're not just for us to talk about on Sabbath afternoon and, and break down. They're actually for the whole world because, after all, this is a worldwide message. And um, going on, she says, Those who eat the flesh and drink the blood of the Son of God will bring from the books of Daniel and Revelation truth that is inspired by the Holy Spirit. They will start into action forces that cannot be repressed. The lips of children will be open to proclaim the mysteries that have been hidden from the minds of men. So do you think having an understanding of the book of Daniel is important? Very much so. Because we are told here that those who eat the flesh and drink the blood of the Son of God, what's that describing? That's describing the experience of those who have a sanctified walk with God. Um, that, of course, comes from the Gospel of John, that where Jesus says, eat my flesh and drink my blood. That means to take in the whole life of Christ. And we are told that those who eat the flesh and drink the blood of the Son of God bring from the books of Daniel and Revelation truth that is inspired by the Holy Spirit. Now, we sometimes get into ruts when we study the book of Daniel and Revelation. We go through the same explanation of the 2300-day prophecy, and we need to understand that. But what we need to understand more clearly is what is it about the 2300-day prophecy that's relevant to my life today for how I am to live, to be ready for Jesus to come and to prepare others. So that's what we're going to try to look at today. And then going on, many of the prophecies are about to be fulfilled in quick succession. Every element of power is about to be set to work. Past history will be repeated. Old controversies will arouse to new life. And peril will be set God's people on every side. Intensity is taking hold of the human family. And then she says, Study Revelation in connection with Daniel, for history will be repeated. And notice this. We, with all our religious advantages, ought to know far more today than we do now. So we really should know more. And that's why we're here today and I'm glad to see each one of you here we want to know more Um, I hope that each one of us will learn something new today Um, we don't want to just be going over the same things over and over again but we want to be learning new truths that will solidify our experience with God so we will be ready for the last days and I'll just read one more sentence. As we near the close of this world's history, the prophecies relating to the last days especially demand our study. And that is what we are going to do today. Now, I just read from an inspired source, Ellen White, but let me give you another inspired source, and that is Jesus himself. Matthew 24, verse 15, Jesus says, When ye therefore shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, stand in the holy place. Whoso readeth, let him understand. So Jesus is telling his disciples then and telling us now, the book of Daniel is a book that he wants us to read and understand. And if you understand also the book of Revelation, chapter 10, Jesus is the mighty angel holding open that little book, the book of Daniel, that he wants us to understand. So what I'm going to do is start off by mentioning this. 
The book of Daniel, if you study the, the history of um, how prophetic faith was understood, people started taking the prophecies of Daniel more seriously in the uh, mid to late 1700s and 1800s. And there were a number of people that were studying these prophecies. Um, William Miller was not the only one who had a belief of the 2300 days ending around the time of 1843. If you study it out, there was actually a number of people. Dates varied from 1843 to 1844 to as late as 1866. And they all believed in the literal year-for-day principle, and they believed that it began roughly in the same time period, if you think about it, the fact that you had people that agreed that it would end somewhere between 1843 to 1867 is, is not that bad. Um, there was um, variance of opinion on what the starting point was. But the thing that I want us to pay a special attention to, what I've done here is I've put up a diagram of Daniel 2, 7, 8, and Daniel 10 through 12. Of course, Daniel 2 is the first prophecy of Daniel. Daniel 7 is the second. Daniel 8 is the third. And then Daniel 10 through 12 is one continuous prophecy, starting in chapter 10, ending um, in chapter 12. And we're not going to go through the whole sequence of kingdoms. I think most of us understand Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, and its pagan and papal element. The only thing that I'm going to make note of is that in Daniel 8, um, that is the first prophecy where Babylon is missing. And the key thing to remember there is that Daniel chapter 8 is the chapter where the 2300-day prophecy is given. And so what God wants people to understand is he, he wants it to be crystal clear for people to understand what kingdom the 2300-day prophecy starts. Because Daniel chapter 2, we have Babylon being the head of gold. Daniel chapter 7, the lion is the is the kingdom of Babylon. But then in Daniel chapter 8, you start off with the ram and the hego, and then towards the end of Daniel chapter 8, the, the angel spells it out to Daniel what exactly those nations were, the ram being Medo-Persia and the hego being Greece. So God spells that out for us clearly. And the reason why is that the 2300-day prophecy begins in the kingdom of Medo-Persia. And so that's why Babylon is missing in Daniel chapter 8. And William Miller had this all diagrammed out pretty well. And if you think about it, you know, we almost take for granted um, having an understanding of what these kingdoms are and what they represent. But what William Miller did that was significant was most of the, the, most of the prophetic um, scholars of that time that were Protestant-leaning all agreed on the first four kingdoms. But what William Miller did that was unique was he took um, the last elements and synthesized them in a way that hadn't been done before. For example, the stone hitting the image, the judgment sitting, the sanctuary being cleansed, Michael standing up. He linked all of those together in a very systematic way. It's pretty impressive that he was able to do that. But of course, if you read in Great Controversy, it says angels helped him and guided him as he studied. And I was actually in that room just two days ago. And it's, um, 
It's very um, fascinating to see the very spot of the room where he sat and studied for all those years putting this together. Now, William Miller, around 1832, or even before then, he had come to the conviction that the world would end around 1843. And he came to that conclusion through his understanding of the 2300-day prophecy. And finally, around 1831, 1832, he got the courage to go out and start preaching when he received the call from God. And that's, that's an important point, just to make a quick note of, is that sometimes, perhaps some of us feel that we are ready to go out and give this message to the world. But um, if you notice how William Miller got started, he didn't go out and preach until God called him to do so. And he kind of went in kicking and screaming. But once he went into it, he was used in a mighty way. So William Miller starts preaching this message of the end of the world in 1843. And of course, he got a few things wrong. One, of course, being that the 2300-day prophecy ended in 1843. Well, obviously... It ended in 1844. They forgot about the fact that there was no zero year between B.C. and A.D. They also didn't take into account that the beginning of the 2300 days started in the fall of, of 457 B.C. And so it wouldn't end until the fall of 1844. And we're not going to go into this now, but Samuel Snow does a very fine job of um, explaining the types and the antitypes between the Day of Atonement um, in the time of the Jews and the anti-type at the end of time. Um. So, so William Miller believed it would end around 1843. Of course, they gained greater light and found that it was going to end around 1844, and specifically October 22. But this is where the Millerites, of course, made some of their major mistakes. And fortunately, God raised up the Adventist pioneers, James and Ellen White, Joseph Bates, and Hiram Edson. If you, if you study out the history, um, Joseph Bates and Hiram Edson were giants. They really um, studied the Bible out and, and came to a much clearer understanding of all these prophecies, even more so than William Miller did. And God used them in a mighty way. But if you look at what William Miller does, and this is where I want to start. This is sort of our focal point for the beginning, and then we're going to go from here. William Miller believed that the stone hitting the image in Daniel chapter 2, the judgment sitting and the Son of Man coming to the ancient and the gods of heaven, the sanctuary being cleansed, and Michael standing up, were all talking about the same thing. And they were describing the end of the world and the second coming of Christ. And if you think about it, considering that no one else had ever studied this before, it was not a bad interpretation in and of itself. He didn't have a real good understanding of the investigative judgment, obviously, and, and he didn't also understand the earthly sanctuary. But for him to come to this by studying the parallel prophecies in Daniel was quite impressive. But... What the Adventists, Joseph Bates, James and Ellen White, Hiram Edson, were able to um, come up with is what I'm going to put up on the board now. So when, um, 
when the stone hits the image at the end, at the end of the prophecy in Daniel chapter 2, this is talking about the end of the end time. That is when God's kingdom fills the whole earth. The judgment sits in Daniel chapter 7. That is not the end of the end time. This is actually the beginning of the end time. So, the beginning of the end time, the judgment sitting. And then Daniel chapter 8, the sanctuary being cleansed, that's basically a parallel. And then Michael standing up, that's the end of the end time again. So William Miller was close, but he didn't have everything nailed down. But um, William Miller was a man of God. He didn't, unfortunately, accept the Sabbath message, the third angel's message. But Ellen White tells us that angels guard, quote, the precious dust of his grave and that he will be in heaven. So God used him in a mighty way. You can read about that in early writings. But here, here's the point. Daniel is giving us a picture. These prophecies are giving us a picture of the end of time. And at the end of time, some very important issues are going to start to take place. One of them being the judgment, which is synonymous with the cleansing of the sanctuary. And the question that we need to ask ourselves today is, from, the, from when the judgment sits in Daniel chapter 7 to when Michael stands up in Daniel chapter 12 verse 1, what is it that needs to take place? And what is it that God wants us to understand? So I want to look at a few verses, and this is, we're going to, I hope this will be a fresh approach to Daniel chapter 7 and 8. Now, in Daniel chapter 8, we have, of course, the, f the first 14 verses, which are the vision of the 2300-day prophecy. And Daniel, in verse 15, clearly doesn't understand what this vision was. And so notice what happens here in verse 15. There's something that God wants Daniel to understand. So in verse 15 it says, And it came to pass when I, even I, Daniel, had seen the vision, this is the vision of the 2300 days, and sought for the meaning, then behold, there stood before me as the appearance of a man. So let me ask you this. If Daniel is seeking for the meaning of the vision of the 2300 days, does he understand it? No, he does not understand because he's seeking for the meaning of what the vision is. So that's the first thing. And then we see there's this appearance of a man. Now, who is this man? And why does he appear? What is the purpose of this appearance of a man? Verse 16, it says, And I heard a man's voice between the banks of Eli, which called and said, Gabriel, make this man to understand the vision. So in verse 16, you have this man's voice. And I think I've heard someone say, this is Jesus himself. This is the pre-incarnate Christ. 
And he says to Gabriel, make the, or, or, so let me say this, let me frame it like this. What was the purpose of Christ sending Gabriel to Daniel for? Exactly. So the purpose of Christ sending Gabriel in verse 16 is to help Daniel understand the vision. So let me ask you this. If Daniel doesn't understand, but he wants to understand, and Christ sends Gabriel to understand, first of all, who's Gabriel? He's the head angel in heaven. He's the one who replaced Lucifer. So think about it this way. If Daniel doesn't understand the vision, but he's seeking for the meaning, and then Christ sends Gabriel to help Daniel understand the vision, and Gabriel just happens to be the head angel in heaven, how important do you think understanding this vision really is? It's absolutely essential. It was so important for Daniel to understand this vision that... Jesus sent his head angel, Gabriel, to understand this vision of the 2300 days. And verse 17 will tell us what exactly it was that God wanted Daniel to understand. So verse 17. So he came near where I stood, and when he came, I was afraid and fell upon my face. But he said unto me, understand. Have you heard this word before? Understand, O son of man. So I'm not going to read the rest of it yet. Gabriel is telling Daniel, this is what God wants you to understand. In verse 15, Daniel says, I saw the vision, but I didn't understand the meaning. Verse 16, Christ says, Daniel, this is so important that I'm sending Gabriel to help you, Daniel, understand the vision. And in verse 17, Gabriel says to Daniel... Daniel, this is what you need to understand. And what was it that Daniel was supposed to understand? And it says right there in verse 17, For at the time of the end shall be the vision. Now, what do you know about the time of the end? This actually is perhaps a foreign concept to Daniel at that time. But I can tell you what Daniel was thinking. When he saw this vision of the 2300 days, and we're not going to go to Daniel 9, he thought that because of the wickedness of the children of Israel while they were taken captive into Babylon, that their time of captivity would be extended not 70 years, which had been prophesied in Jeremiah 25 verse 12, but that it would be extended 2,300 years. And if you look at the end of verse uh, of chapter 8, Daniel was sick certain days, he was astonished, and none understood the vision. He could not believe that it was going to be 2,300 years of captivity. But what Gabriel was trying to get him to understand, and what God wanted him to understand, was this vision really is for the time of the end. It's not really for your time. Because, Daniel, you're not going to live in the time of the end. But the vision this is the thing you're supposed to understand, is for the time of the end. Now, let me just show you a few verses, and I think some of you already know um, how we can show when the time of the end begins. But let's look at just a few verses in Daniel chapter 12. Daniel chapter 12, verse 4. It 
Verse 4 of Daniel 12, it says, But thou, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book even to the time of the end. So here's that phrase again, the time of the end. So this book of Daniel is being sealed till the time of the end. And then it says, Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall be increased. And real quickly, that's talking more so about those who run to and fro in seeking to understand the book of Daniel and the prophecies as it is the increase in technology. And knowledge of this prophecy of Daniel increases at the end of time. Now, the time element of the time of the end, as you go down through the chapter, then we see the time times and a half, which scatter the power of the holy people. That's the 1260 years in verse 7. And notice verse 8. So Daniel hears about this 1260 years, but this concept of understanding comes back again. Daniel, as... Um, brilliant a man as he was. He was ten times wide, wide in a bad one. He sees these things from God and he's not understanding. What's the 1260 years? This time, times and a half. What's this time of the end? And God is trying to help him understand. So verse 8 he says, And I heard, but I understood not. Then said I, O my Lord, what shall be the end of these things? And he said, Go thy way, Daniel, for the words are closed up and sealed till the time of the end. So once again, we see in verse 4, we see in verse 9 that the book of Daniel is sealed till the time of the end. But how do you connect that to the element of time? In verse 8, Daniel says, what are the end of these things? And what are these things that he's referring to? It's the verse before. It's the time, times, and a half. So the time, times, and a half are the things that Daniel wants to know when is the end of the time, times, and a half. That's verse 8. And then verse 9, he's told, it's till the time of the end. So, historically speaking, the 1260 years go from 530 to 1798. So, sometime after 1798, we can expect to see the unsealing of the prophecy of the book of Daniel, an understanding of this book, and this is exactly what happened. William Miller started studying these prophecies in the 1820s, started preaching about it in the 1830s. So after 1798, the understanding of this book came open. And, of course, we understand that the, sanctuary, the cleansing of the sanctuary began in 1844 on October 22. And it might be useful to some of you to understand how the date October 22 was arrived at. And then we're going to get into the practical application. Samuel Snow, when he gave his explanation, and he was the first one who really fleshed it all out, showed how that when Jesus died on the cross of Calvary, he he died as the Passover lamb on, on the exact day of Passover. So the antitype fulfills the type on the very day of Passover. And as the, the body that was broken, it symbolized the unleavened bread on the very day of unleavened bread on the Sabbath. And then as the offering of first fruits, he was resurrected. He was the first begotten of the dead. Um, and that, those types and antitypes met each other on the very actual day and then Pentecost was fulfilled on the very day 50 days later um, when the outpouring of the early rain was poured out on the day of Pentecost. So
so Samuel Snow lines that all up and he says those were the spring festivals but there were also the fall festivals so he takes the people of that time to October well he takes them to the time of the day of atonement and through the reckoning of the Jewish Karaite calendar which it's spelled like this so the Jewish Karaites they were the ones who had preserved the, the literal timing of all of these things that the day of atonement which was the the tenth day of the seventh month, the tenth day of the seventh month for the Jewish year would actually be on October 22. Now, what's interesting is that they also showed that the beginning of the Jewish year started on April 19, the evening of April 19, um, or no, the evening of April 18 into the day of April 19 on 1844. And what they showed was that there would be a midnight cry just before Jesus came on October 22. And so... Of course, a full year is six months, and if you take a day, if you take a full day, which is 24 hours, half the day is nighttime and half the day is daytime, obviously. And but there's only 12 months in a year, so therefore, night would represent six months of a year, and the day would represent the other six months of the year. Therefore, the midnight cry, which would start three months after April would probably start about the middle of July of 1844. And that's what happened. Samuel Snow first gave the understanding of October 22, 1844, and the bridegroom coming on that day in July of 1844. But it really took off a month later in August. So they really have these things nailed down to a T, leading up to this 2300-day prophecy. And the thing that I'm trying to impress upon your minds is that this 2300 day prophecy propelled the advent movement including the movement which we are part of today into a powerful existence um, people describe the the time period of 1844 especially between august 12 through 17 which is when samuel snow gave the powerful camp meeting speech and october 22 as um, perhaps one of the most powerful things in the history of the church. It's been described as a tornado. It's been described as an overwhelming flood. And in fact, Ellen White has a couple of, or a few things to say. I'm just going to read a few brief things. Ellen White says, Great Controversy, page 401, of all the great religious movements since the days of the apostles, none have been more free from human imperfection in the wiles of Satan than was that of the autumn of 1844. Even now, after the lapse of many years, all who shared in that movement and who have stood firm upon the platform of truth still feel the holy influence of that blessed work and bear witness that it was of God. And the thing that excites me is when I read statements like this. This is from Testimonies, Volume 5, page 252. The power which stirred the people so mightily in the 1844 movement will again be revealed. The third angel's message will go forth not in whispered tones, but with a loud voice. And then early writings say, I saw that this message will close with power and strength far exceeding the midnight cry. And that's what I want to be a part of. And the reason I read those quotes is because... In many ways, the same understanding of Bible prophecy that the people of that time had is going to provide the inspiration and power to finish this work at the end. 
Um, Ellen White says in Signs of the Times that the parable of the bridegroom has been and will be fulfilled to the very letter. And it was fulfilled to the very letter the first time on October 22, 1844, starting with a midnight cry, um, the, the wise virgins going out to meet him and so forth. And it's going to be fulfilled again at the very end. And Revelation 18 talks about that time. Now, what we want to know today that we're going to look at a little more carefully is in Daniel chapter 7, the judgment sits. And in Daniel chapter 12, Michael stands up. So what is it that's going to get us from the judgments being seated to Michael standing up? That's the most important thing that we're going to look at today. And the first thing I want us to consider is um, in Daniel chapter 7, verse 10, or verses 9 and 10, it talks about the Ancient of Days who's on a fiery throne with wheels, which gives you the concept that, hey, the throne is movable. It's actually moved apartments from the holy to the most holy place. You see the thousand thousands ministering unto the Ancient of Days. And then it says the judgment was set and the books were open. And in other translations, it also says the court was seated. So what it gives you the idea is the, the Father comes into the most holy place. And in verse 13, we see the Son coming before him as well. And they actually sit down. And when they sit down, they open up the books. So this gives you the idea in Daniel chapter 7 when the judgment begins that they sit down to do a process of investigation. And by process of deduction, if you will, the the obvious um, concept would be that when the judgment ends, they would stand up because it's over and they move on to do the next thing. So when the judgment starts, they come in. They sit down at their chairs, they open up the books, and they start investigating the records. When it's all over, they stand up. Now, is there anywhere in the Bible that we can prove this? Well, first of all, Daniel chapter 12, verse 1, a careful reading of that, Michael standing up, that's talking about the close of probation, which is the end of the judgment. So, Daniel chapter 7, you have the beginning of judgment. So... The Father and the Son are seated. At the end of judgment, Michael, who is Christ, stands up. And then it talks about the time of trouble, such as never was since there was a nation. So, Jesus is sitting even now, and we're looking to the time that he's going to stand up. But let's just look at a few verses to show that that this concept of being seated and standing is related to the beginning and ending of judgment. First of all, in Revelation chapter 3, it tells us that Jesus is set down with the Father. This is verse 21 of Revelation chapter 3. Now, interestingly enough, this is the message to Laodicea. And Laodicea... um, The word Laodicea, I think many of you already know what it means. It means a judged people. And Jesus, his last message to Laodicea before he says, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. In verse 21 is, To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and am set down with my Father in his throne. So Jesus, 
comes to this earth, lives an overcoming life. And then when he has finished his work here on this earth, he goes up to heaven, enters into the sanctuary, and sits down at the throne of the Father. And that was at his ascension in 31 AD. Now, Jesus enters, of course, first into the holy place. And apparently the Jews had probably some concept of what, a, of what the judgment was all about. Because Acts chapter 7 gives us a picture of, of a significant event in the history of prophecy. And this is Acts chapter 7, verse 55 and 56. And this is, of course, the powerful sermon that Stephen gives to the Jewish Sanhedrin. And he gave them a message they really didn't want to hear, that they were being unfaithful. And once they had heard enough, this basically was the end of probation for the Jewish nation. Because you have the 490-year prophecy beginning in 457, and it ends in 3480. And the 3480 ends, or that prophecy ends with the stoning of Stephen. And this is just about to happen. And in verse 55, Stephen, in verse 55, he says, But he, being full of the Holy Ghost, looked up steadfastly into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing on the right hand of God. Now, what's the significance here? And because when, when we read in Revelation 3.21, it says, Jesus, when he overcame, he went to heaven and was set down on the right hand of the Father. And the beginning of the judgment in 1844 in Daniel chapter 7, it says the judgment was set. The cords were seated. The books were opened. But here in Acts chapter 7, when Stephen looks into heaven, he sees Jesus standing on the right hand of the throne of God. What's happened here is that this is the close of probation for the Jewish nation. So judgment has ended for the Jewish nation. So this gives us the idea, just as in Daniel chapter 12, verse 1, when probation closes and Michael stands up, that at the end of the 70-week prophecy, which is, by the way, linked to the 2300 days, when the probation for the Jewish nation ended, Jesus stood up, just like he will at the close of probation, sometime after the 2300-day prophecy was fulfilled. So, probation closes, Jesus stands up. Judgment At the beginning of judgment, Jesus sits down. So that's a key point. Now, there's some interesting verses in the Bible that tell us that Jesus will sit on the throne until something happens. And let's go to the book of Hebrews. So Jesus is seated on the throne in heaven, and he is waiting to stand up. And some people may say, well, in Acts chapter 7, Jesus was in the holy place, so how could he be in the throne room of God and be on the right hand of the Father? Well, if you look at the sanctuary imagery, you have... In the holy place, the table of showbread, the altar of incense, and the seven golden candlesticks. Interestingly enough, the, the table of showbread is on the north side with, the, with two stacks of six loaves of bread for a total of 12, so six each. And if you study in the Bible, Jesus says, I'm the bread of life that came down from heaven. So you have 
two stacks of six that are equal to each other. And Jesus says, I'm the bread of life that came down from heaven. So you have two stacks that are, are identical to each other. And Jesus says, I and my Father are one. So in the holy place on the north side, the table of showbread, you have the Father and the Son next to each other, symbolically speaking, in the holy place, where they were from 31 AD to 1844, October 22. And that's where Jesus stood up when probation ended on the Jewish nation. But I want to show you some verses that suggest that Jesus will not always be seated. But first of all, Hebrews chapter 1 Verse 13 says, the last half says, Sit at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. So Jesus is sitting on the right hand. This is the Father speaking to the Son. Jesus sits on the right hand of God until his enemies are made his footstool. And Hebrews chapter 10 gives us an, the, the same idea. Hebrews chapter 10 verses 12 and 13. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God from henceforth, expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. So how, how long is Jesus going to sit? What does the Bible say in Hebrews? He's going to sit until his enemies are made his footstool. So then the thing that you want to know then or the question you would ask yourself is, what are the enemies that are causing Jesus to still sit down instead of stand up in the time of the judgment? Because we're living in the time of judgment after 1844. And this is where it gets really practical and really personal for us as God's people living in the time of judgment. Think about this. We of all people on the history of this planet have the privilege of living after the 2300 days. You know how many of God's people lived before the 2300 days? The majority of God's people lived before the 2300 days. And it should be like a splash of cold. I, I, I would hope that it would be almost like a splash of cold water for us to wake us up out of our laity and stupor that we're living in the time after the 2300 day prophecy, which God's people all down through time before this period of time would have done anything to live in this time period. So do we even realize the privilege we have of living after the 2300-day prophecy? This vision that Daniel had in Daniel chapter 8 was for the time of the end, which we have the privilege of living in. We get to live in the time of the end. So that's quite a thought. And Jesus who is our judge, as William Miller figured out, and our high priest, he is sitting on the right hand of the throne of God until his enemies are made his footstool. Well, let's look at a couple of other Bible verses. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 Verses 24 through 27. Then cometh the end, when he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father, 
when he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power. And verse 25 should sound familiar to the last verses we've read. For he must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet. Okay, so here we have the same concept again, that Jesus is seated on the right hand of God, reigning as our judge and high priest until his enemies are put under his feet, made his footstool. And we keep asking ourselves, so what are these enemies that keep Jesus seated? Well, verse 26 and 27 give us a, a more clear answer. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death, for he hath put all things under his feet. But when he saith all things under him, it is manifest that he is accepted, which did put all things under him. So what is the last enemy to be destroyed according to the Bible? Death. Okay. So Jesus, our great high priest, will continue to sit on the right hand of the throne of God in the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary until death is destroyed. Now... We may ask ourselves the question, okay, so Jesus says that I'm the resurrection and the life. Why doesn't he just destroy death now? Why, why do we have to wait for death to be destroyed when it's really only God who has the power to put an end to death? But let's think a little bit deeper. Death is... Really, it's a cause and effect relationship why death even exists. And so let's go to Romans 6.23. Pretty familiar verse. Why is it that death is still in existence? Romans 6.23. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So, the last enemy to be, to be destroyed is death. But what causes death? Sin. So, what is it going to take for Michael in Daniel chapter 12, verse 1 to stand up? No more sin. And if you think about it, the purpose of the 2300-day prophecy and of these prophecies of Daniel, it's not just to point us to who Babylon is and Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome, as important as that is. And please don't ever throw those principles of interpretation away. That's who we are as a people. We are historicists. But the purpose of Daniel, if you look at it, it's all funneling down to this climax every time. In Daniel chapter 2, it's the stone hitting the image. Daniel chapter 7, it's the judgment sitting. Daniel chapter 8, it's the sanctuary being cleansed. Daniel chapter 10 through 12, it's Michael standing up. All of this to say that in the time of judgment, this is the time that God is finally planning on putting an end to sin on this earth, on this planet. That's the whole purpose for the 2300-day prophecy. It points us to the time of the judgment hour when the last enemy will be destroyed. And that is sin. No more sin, no more death.
And that's why the sanctuary can be cleansed. Because when there's no more sin, you have a cleansed sanctuary. So, in, in 1 Corinthians, it tells us that our body is the temple of the Holy Ghost. And so, when we think about that in our own personal life, that, that the sanctuary in heaven will not be cleansed in heaven until God has a cleansed people here on this earth, then it makes these prophecies of the gold, silver, brass, iron, iron mixed with clay, mingling with the seed of men, the stone hitting the image... Um, the little horn which speaks great things, thinks to change times and laws. All of these things, and Daniel chapter 11 is an amazing prophecy. Um, all of those things that make sense when you realize that Jesus began the judgment on October 22, 1844. Of course, he stood up to move from the holy place to the most holy place. You can read about that scene in early writings. A most magnificent scene in heaven. But then he sat down again in October 22, waiting until his enemies are made his footstool. Now I want to point out a few other things. Genesis chapter 3.15 gives us, and we'll wrap up in the next few minutes here, but Genesis 3.15 gives us a clue about Something being your foot steel, something being put under your foot. Genesis 3.15 says, And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. You know, when Jesus... The only way that sin can be put to an end, of course, of course is through the blood of Christ. Amen? It's only the blood of Christ that cleanses us from sin. So we, by faith, accept his atoning sacrifice but we also accept his the power of his life into our hearts so that we can be like him but notice that when jesus atoned for our sins on the cross that it it caused something and the first prophecy of that tells us that his heel was bruised so in order for jesus to put an end to sin to make to sin to make his enemies his footstool his heel got bruised so we see the prophecy of that even in Genesis 3.15 that for the end of sin to take place that the heel of Christ would be bruised. But there's something even more fascinating in Romans chapter 16 verse 20. Notice that when we talk about putting an end to sin about sin being done away with it's all through the power of Christ. It's not in our own strength. Romans 16.20 this is a fascinating prophecy. This relates to Genesis 3.15. And here the Bible says, And the God of peace shall bruise Satan under your feet shortly. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. So this tells us that, you know, when Jesus, when he put an end to sin by dying on the cross, he made the provision for the end of sin to be made. His heel was bruised, and he still seated until his enemies are destroyed. And God tells us here in Romans 16 that when God gives us the power over Satan in our lives, that um, 
he, that Satan's head will be bruised under our feet. Which kind of gives us the, the idea that, that we will, in a sense, be bruised as well. Similarly to Christ, of course, it's not an atoning sacrifice. But it does take, in a sense, to put the old man, the carnal nature, away. Until we do that, it feels like a sacrifice. And Satan is always trying to make us feel like we're giving so much to surrender our lives completely to God. But yet, just like Jesus, um, God wants to bruise Satan under our feet as well. He did it with Christ, but it didn't end there. It ends with God's people. And when God has a people who allow him to put away sin in their hearts, they surrender their lives completely, then Satan's head will be bruised as well. And I'm going to end with a couple more thoughts here in Hebrews chapter 12. Because in Hebrews chapter 12, and I always see something new in this verse every time I look at it. Well, not every time, but many times. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 4, of course, is the great verse that talks about running the race with patience, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. And I'll just go ahead and read it. Verse 1 of chapter 12. Where we're seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down. At the right hand of the throne of God. Now, how does that connect to what we've been talking about? Jesus being seated at the right hand of the throne of God, waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. Well, this verse gives us the idea that Jesus, when he was here on this earth, he ran the race with patience. And he endured the cross. And after he did that, he sat down at the throne of God. Well, Revelation 3 basically tells us, that it describes that whole experience in one word, overcoming. But Hebrews chapter 12 gives us a much more descriptive picture, running the race with patience. Taking much energy, endurance, perseverance, probably sweating a lot of sweat, maybe even sweating drops of blood like Christ did. He endured the cross. And at the end, he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God because he overcame sin. And what Hebrews is telling us here, because Hebrews is the same book that said, Jesus is set down at the right hand of the throne of God from henceforth expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. So this is contextual. Within the book of Hebrews itself, Jesus is seated on the right hand of the throne of God until he has a group of people that run the same race that he ran here on this earth. And then when he has a group of people here on this earth that can run the race of, with patience, just like he did, and the only way we can do that is by looking at him constantly, looking unto Jesus, then he will stand up because he has a people to overcome even as, as he overcame. And that's the message to Laodicea. The message to Laodicea is, To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me on my throne, 
even as I also overcame. And that is to Laodicea, who is a judged people. It's a judgment hour message. Overcome as I overcame. Be like me. Run the race with patience. Endure the cross. Despise the shame. And when you do, you will sit down at the right hand of the throne of God just like I did. That's the message to God's judgment, our people. And verse 3 and 4 give us a clearer insight into exactly how this is possible. For consider him, and we so often forget to do that. We consider ourselves, our own feelings, our own desires, what we think is good, without considering him, Jesus, and what his word says. For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself. You may think, you know, there's no way that I can get out of this predicament. I mean, if only people knew what I was going through, they would understand why I did what I did. No, consider Jesus, who endured such contradiction of sinners against himself. Lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds, ye have not yet resisted unto blood, striving against sin. Now, I want to go back to what I read at the beginning of the study, if I can find that piece of paper. Yeah, here it is. This is Maranatha, page 30. Those who eat the flesh and drink the blood of the Son of God will bring from the books of Daniel and Revelation truth that is inspired by the Holy Spirit. They will start into action forces that cannot be repressed. I want to tell you that the prophecy of the 2300 days brought into action the Millerite movement in such a way that the forces of this world couldn't repress it. And in fact... Um, I got a little, when I was at William Miller's farm, I found this handout. This is a newspaper picture of what one of the leading Boston newspapers published just before October 22, mocking the Millerites. But yet, in a sense, they were adding further power to the message of the 2300-day prophecy. And so God even used the people of this world to put into print the message of October 22, 1844, which I find fascinating. That's right. And this message, as I read earlier, and let me read this again just to remind us that Ellen White says, I saw that this message will close with power and strength far exceeding the midnight cry. And this message, at its height, there were 17 million people in the United States of America, and there were 50,000 professed believers in this message, maybe 100,000. William Miller was nearly as well known as the President of the United States. And many years have come and gone since then, and unfortunately I don't think that our message is as prominent now as it was then. But the time will come, the day will come, when the prophecy of Revelation 18 will be fulfilled, that the whole earth will be lightened with the glory of this message. And that will only happen as we as God's people 
take this judgment hour message seriously, that the purpose of the judgment is to put an end to sin, so that sin, so that Michael can stand up. That's why God has brought us into existence. We are a group of people with a message of, for translation, and that's why we exist on this earth today. So I pray that we have gained a renewed focus through the power of this message, the purpose of this message, and what God wants us to do in our lives. He wants us to eat the flesh and drink the blood of the Son of God every day, to run that race with patience, just like Jesus did, to overcome as Jesus did. That's the judgment hour message to Laodicea. And we as God's people are that judgment hour people. And I have to also say that you know that the book of Daniel means, the word Daniel itself means God is my judge. So as we study this book of Daniel, which means God is my judge, it's for a people with a judgment hour message who are a people. So don't let anyone ever tell you that the prophecies of Daniel are antiquated, they're outdated, that they're tired of hearing about horns and beasts. What you want to do as God's people today is to take people through the book of Daniel and show them the power of God and the power of Christ, the power to change people's lives. It's not just to prove 1844, as important as that is, it's to prove the transforming power of God in our life, even today. So that is our message, that's why we exist, and Jesus will continue to sit until he has a group of people that are like him. So I, that's why we exist here at Advent Hope. We are here to allow God to change our hearts so that we can help others to prepare for eternity as well. So let's bow our heads for prayer. Father in heaven, thank you so much for this beautiful message. You've entrusted it to us as a people. Forgive us for how in so many ways we've gotten the message. We've made it in many ways of none effect by how we live our lives. But we know that a time is coming when, when you will stand up at the close of probation and you are looking for a people who will overcome as you overcame, that will run the race with patience and resist sin unto blood. May we be that group of people. May we live that life of faith every day. Forgive us for our sins. Forgive us for where we've fallen short and help us to come up higher every day. Thank you again for this beautiful message. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.